And we're live with Angular Air. Hello, my name is Ken Sagans, and I am your host today for this uh, topic on Angular Air. The topic is the importance of learning JavaScript. And we're really excited about this episode because JavaScript is pretty important to the Angular framework and uh, to your lives as web developers. So um, I'm just going to go ahead and introduce everybody really quick. We have a special guest today, Kyle Simpson. Hello. And we're super stoked to have him. Uh, if you don't know who Kyle Simpson is, um, we'll give you a chance to get to know him uh, when he introduces himself a little bit. Uh, then we also have our panelists, our regular panelists, Amy Knight. Hello. And Patrick J.S. Hey, guys. And Jeff Welpley. Hello. And uh, before we jump into things, I'm just going to make a couple of quick announcements. Um, as always, you can uh, check out the hashtag ngairquestion on Twitter, and uh, you can ask us questions with that hashtag. And at the end of the show, um, we'll drill Kyle and the panelists with these terrible questions. Just kidding. Um, so any questions that you have about uh, learning JavaScript um, are very pertinent to this episode. Um, and then, as always, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Google+ uh, to keep up with the latest. Uh, next week's show is actually not happening because those of us in the United States celebrate a weird holiday called Thanksgiving where we just stuff ourselves and we're all really excited about that so we will not be on this show. Um, but the week after that, um, December 1st, we'll have the Angular team. So if you have been watching since the beginning of the show, you'll remember that our first episode, episode zero, was with the Angular team and we, uh, we had uh, Pete Bacon Darwin uh, Brad Green, Mishko Hevery, and Igor Minar. And we're going to have that exact same lineup um, uh, for that show as well. So we're looking forward to getting a status update from the Angular team um, in two weeks, not next week. Um, and I think that's it for our announcements. Um, also, if you have any friends who are not watching live, um, let them know that there's going to be a very special announcement at the end of this episode. Um, so. At about in, in about 45 minutes, make sure to uh, tune on and tell your friends to turn out, tune on so that uh, you don't miss that special announcement. It's going to be awesome. Okay, cool. Let's get started. So, Kyle, why don't uh, you give us a little introduction to yourself? Yeah, I am Kyle Simpson. Uh, most people call me Getify, especially online. So I can be found at Getify on Twitter and GitHub and all the other places online that matter. Uh, so if you find a site that doesn't have a Getify, that may not be that awesome of a site. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> Where did Getify come from? <laughs> yeah, it's, I wish it was an interesting or exciting story. Uh, years and years ago, Ask.com search engine, if anybody remembers them, did a series of TV commercials, and the uh, theme of that TV commercial was the word getafaction, like the word getting plus the word satisfaction, and they put those two together. And the very first time I saw that TV commercial, the verb form of that word, getify, popped into my mind, and I said, that's it. That's what I'm going to do to, to describe what I do in the web, which is to go and get useful stuff and make it accessible to people. So that's where it came from. Well, you said that wasn't interesting. That To me, that was pretty, pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. Cool. Ask.com, big shout-out to them, I guess. Well, it's cooler than Kent C. Dodds. That, that one's pretty boring. It's just my name. <laughs> so I am a, a JavaScript developer. I've been at this now for uh, about 17 years, so way, way too long. 
Um, but I I build and write JavaScript, and I, I these days focus mostly on teaching JavaScript to others. So through the books and through my position with MakerSquare, I focus in, on how to better teach JavaScript, not just can you get something done, can you drop in a plug-in and you know, make it work, but can you really deeply understand what it's about. So that's why I'm excited about today's topic, because that's near and dear to my heart. Okay, I have a couple questions, but I'll start off with my very first one. So personally for me, I am at one end of the spectrum where I'm like really uncomfortable with abstraction, and I like to dig really deep, and people have to tell me, like, you know enough for now, stop and move on. <laughs> um, but I'm curious your advice for the other end of the spectrum, um, for people, especially kind of like for juniors who really want to be productive on their team and ship code. Um, and then there's some juniors who are kind of like, it just works and that's enough. So what is your advice on finding a balance in between? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I definitely don't recommend that a developer spend all of their time coding and non none of their time thinking, nor do I recommend the other side where you spend, you sit in an ivory tower and think lofty thoughts about JavaScript but never actually practice and do, there has to be some sort of balance. So what I recommend typically to a developer is to, to focus on the doing part. And as you go along, rather than just simply skipping over, whenever you drop in a black box, something you don't understand, rather than skipping over that thing, make yourself a mental note or even a physical note to say, uh, there is a point in time that I'm going to circle back and try to dig deeper. And so over the period of a week or a month or even a year, for example, you may be focusing much more on the doing part. But make yourself a list of things and then cycle into a period of time where you're more about trying to learn and understand something deeper. And pick one thing, for example, and really go deep with it, wrestle with it, struggle with it. And, and I also think that part of the, one of the most important parts of learning is to teach other people. So in that period of time, also make sure you're trying to teach what you're learning to others. Even if that isn't in your, you know, if the word teacher isn't in your job title, you can still teach by writing blog posts, giving lightning talks at meetups, um, going to other members of your team and doing a brown bag lunch, for example. So I, I recommend and encourage and challenge people to really uh, go through those periods of time where learning is the more important thing and that doesn't mean you stop doing, but it means that you're uh, focused more on the learning aspect than just simply rolling out code. And then you're going to have to cycle back to the doing. So I think a truly good, uh, well-rounded, solid career is composed of doing both of those, cycling through uh, the times that you are learning more and cycling through the times that you're practicing the things you learned. And when you're practicing the things you learned, you will inevitably find the next thing that's interesting to go dig into. Okay, another question kind of related to that, and this goes for not just juniors, but for anybody really. Um, if you're, you know, if you're at a startup or something, and uh, you know, you really, really, really have a focus on shipping features because you need to get customers on board, how do you strike a balance there between again shipping and digging deep? Especially, let's say you're startup greenfield project so you need to vet the new things that you're using but it's also really important that you're shipping features quickly. Yeah, um, I guess I would respond to that by saying I think there's a false dichotomy here which is that clients only care about the doing and they don't care about the quality and they don't care about how well 
you do the thing. I have a theory, it's not really, I guess, provable, but I think the total cost of ownership of well-written, understandable, and learnable code is lower than the total cost of ownership of just simply slapping things together. So when you are building for one of those clients, I think you do have to have some of those conversations with them up front to say, you know, I, I want us to make sure that we're not just building a thing that works, but building the best solution for you. And that includes our developers more deeply understanding the problem space and the way that we're putting those tools together. We're going to build that into our process and in the end you're going to end up with a better product for the same amount of money. So rather than focusing on this as a trade-off like I'm losing something because I'm learning, really the learning is the way that you unlock the most value out of the doing. I think actually that uh, um, makes me think of Amy's talk um, at uh, I, I think Angular Connect in November, those were similar talks, right, Amy? I, I think I, I watched your Angular Connect talk. It was awesome. Um, but uh, it makes me think of that because of the value that uh, Amy mentioned about uh, teaching and mentoring other developers. It's um, like it's a lot more valuable than I think we know because you're enabling those people to um, uh, not only like. Not only is it just the nice thing to do to help other people, but they become serious contributors to your code base once they understand your abstractions. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, to borrow a, a metaphor from other other times that I've discussed this. I think that uh, it's kind of like if you ask yourself, is it okay for me to simply drive a car and have absolutely no idea how the car is drivable? Yeah, but. It's, it's, it's only okay in the happy path. When things start to go wrong, if you have no idea what you're doing, there's really no hope of you fixing that thing correctly, and you're going to be completely at the mercy of other people to take over and do that for you. So well, really those, you... those myopic mindsets only really work in the happy path, and they fall apart when problems come in. Well, really what you're talking about requires like discipline, like really teaching discipline at the end of the day. And I've always found that's like a hard thing to do because I can explain technically to uh, my peers or uh, other workers like how to do something but you know how do you have any thoughts on like how to actually ingrain like that discipline that they don't just kind of fall back into old old habits and and uh, you know the, the poor practices I think you have to build this into the corporate culture so I'm a big fan for example of code reviews and rather than having a corporate culture that says we're going to dumb down, if you will, the team to the lowest common denominator, the most junior developer on the team. I think you have to set a more um, uh, a, a higher bar for everybody on the developer team. I always like to say that I don't care. I don't care where you're at in your understanding. What I care about most is the direction that you're headed in. If you're headed in a direction of understanding more, then every person is free to be at their different position as long as we're all learning. And I think you have to build that into the corporate culture and one of the most effective ways is through code review. When somebody more junior submits a piece of code, rather than a senior level person that's reviewing that code just saying, you know, approved or rejected, they should use that code review as an opportunity to provide feedback that helps that junior developer learn more and also helps the senior developer learn more if they have to articulate why a particular idiom or pattern might have been better for this code than the way that was done. So it's less about, uh, oh, you failed that code review, as we both use that as an opportunity to engage. We had to get our jobs done. We have to review code and get it out, but we also both 
learned from that process. So I, I really encourage developers to not think about these things as, um, as the, this false dichotomy, like I can't do that because my boss will never care. You have to find the ways to inline that, to streamline that in with the normal things that you would do in your job, and that will enrich the culture at that company so that everybody is benefiting because everybody's learning. That's awesome. I that's a huge plus one for me on, on the value of code reviews and, and uh, teaching, not just accept reject. Um, like often, if I think it's a good um, a contribution and I'm going to accept it, I'll often you know indicate like this was a really good thing that you did here, like this, and this is why. Um, like it would have been easier to do it this other way. So I'm, I'm not like that's great that you did it this way, um, or um, in the context of. Uh, using ES6, lots of JavaScript developers are just starting to get used to that. Um, and so when something can be do done more elegantly uh, using ES6, like uh, uh, destructuring or default parameters or something, um, it, that, that's a great opportunity to teach people new concepts in ES6 that they're not familiar with. Um, and uh, yeah, it, like uh, pull requests and uh, code reviews have been a huge benefit. Uh, uh, to me and, and my team here where I work. So, yeah, huge plus one to that. Kent, I'm glad you bring up ES6, actually. That, that brings me to something I really feel very passionately about and, and want to mention. Um, I think one of the missing narratives around ES6, or perhaps where we're kind of got the wrong focus about it, so it's often thought of as, well, they just added all this new syntax, all these new features to the language, and there's just so much more new stuff to learn or whatever. I don't think that's the productive narrative to draw from ES6. I think the most important thing to see there is that ES6 is about providing you a more declarative and more understandable way of doing the same things that you've always been doing. And there's lots of examples. For example, the spread operator being able to replace a lot of times that we have to have that awkward usage of the apply method to spread out arguments uh, as parameters, for example. So um, it's not really about new things, but about new ways of expressing the old stuff. And the reason why that's important is not just because we're developers that want to save time and write things quicker. I think that is where we get off track. It's not about writing code faster. It's about writing code that will be more readable to the next developer, whether that's somebody on your team or whether that's your future self. Because my strong belief is that code is not first and foremost for the computer. It's first and foremost for other human beings. It's a means of communication. That's why it matters how we write the code, because if we're not effectively communicating with others, then someday somebody's going to be unable to understand it. They're just going to simply rewrite it. And you failed at communication if you couldn't get across what it was that you were thinking. Uh, I think it's really important that we do that. And, and by the way, there's a sort of subtle uh, uh, underlying tone here which is if you can express code in such a way that other people can learn from your code, then I know for sure that you've mastered that. So you have gone through the process of understanding it deeper enough that you can express that to others. So I think it's it's all two sides of the same coin. I think ES6 is a really important tool for that. Yeah, I definitely think that sometimes people get too tricky, uh, that they uh, try to like you know do everything in one line or something like that, and it ends up being a mess and just unreadable. Um, so there, it is sort of an art to not just do something in the shortest amount of characters or whatever, but to figure out, think of the next developer that's coming and looking at your code and kind of build for that person. So I agree that it definitely takes a lot of skill to do that. 
I did want to add one other thing to the discussion we were having on code reviews. I think if you have the opportunity, especially if you're a junior, to go over the code that you've written with the person reviewing it, because that's going to force you to understand what you did. I think uh, an issue, or I think um, like a precursor to a lot of technical debt is just writing code without really understanding what you're writing. Because when you understand what you're writing, you can refactor it, you can write it more cleanly. You really have to understand what you're writing. <laughs> and hand in hand with that too, I think, is uh, making your um, contributions or your pull requests uh, as small as they possibly can be, um, you know, and, and still provide value to the code base. Uh, because when, like, actually I, I saw a tweet from uh, uh, that uh, developer, uh, shoot, what's that? Um, Joe, Randy. No, there. Yeah, there's this. Wow. No, no, no. It's it's like a, a troll account. Um, uh, it's got Napoleon Dynamite as the as the avatar. Uh, but anyway, um, so he he said like there's a the difference between uh, two different pull requests. Like there's the pull request that's like ten lines of code. It's like tons and tons of comments on it, and then the pull request that's like five hundred lines of code is like yeah accepted. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that totally happens because it's just like you see this huge pull request and you're like, I really don't have time to review this whole thing. And even if you do, it's hard to understand all of the thought process that went in that. And so um, at, like, if you want to have good um, feedback on your contributions to the code base, um, I would yeah, recommend making your contributions smaller. And Patrick corrected me. It's I am developer. I recommend you follow that, that account. It's hilarious. Actually, I think the account got like bought out or something because Avatar changed. So then now it's now they're posting like articles and stuff. What? No, really? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, that's funny you say that because I have noticed a slight change in tone. I wouldn't be surprised actually. I, I think that's what happened. Um, oh no, they changed the Avatar again. It's really important when you're doing the code review. I feel like from a junior's perspective, again, if a senior's doing it, to ask questions. Because again, like I said, like it forces the junior to understand the code that they're writing and not just blindly copy and paste or, you know, with like frameworks and stuff, it's really easy to understand the framework but not understand how JavaScript's working in the framework. There's a uh, quote, um, I, I like to use this all the time in my teachings. There's a quote from Arthur C. Clarke, it's very famous, obviously he's a famous science fiction writer. Clarke is well known for his three laws, and the third of his three laws is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Most people have heard that quote before. Mm -hmm. I like to repurpose that quote a little bit and say any sufficiently unlearned technology is indistinguishable from magic. As developers, the industry um, incentivizes us to basically go and find as many black boxes as we can and plug them together in as many interesting ways as possible and ship code. And that's fantastic uh, for getting a paycheck. But as I said before, it's bad when uh, things go off the rails when you don't understand. Uh, my theory is if you don't understand how a piece of code works, you have no hope of fixing it. So you have no more mastery over that code that you've plugged a bunch of black boxes together than you do a set of magical incantations, for example. I think it's important that developers be able to not just put those boxes together, but then also go in and understand them. I'm not saying I want you to go write your own Angular or your own other frameworks or libraries, but I am saying that 
and so this isn't a, this isn't like a reinvent the wheel thing, but I am saying you should understand how the wheel works before you bolt it onto your car. It's important to be able to open up the source code for Angular, see what it's like, uh, understand it better. I know there's a book, and I also saw a talk of the same topic. Since we're we're talking, you know, on an Angular podcast here, there's a talk that said build your own Angular. Oh, that was a fantastic talk when I saw it at a conference, because rather than saying you should go build your own Angular, the premise really was you should be able to understand all of this code, and that's what I think all developers should be striving towards. Yeah, Taro is crazy smart. The guy who wrote that, I yeah. gave that talk. He's awesome. Yeah, definitely. So on that topic, uh, yesterday I think you tweeted about um, a blog post that I think you posted a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, it's uh, the the question isn't whether or not you should use a framework, but um, how much um, and, and like how much that framework should take part in, or yeah, I guess when to use a framework and how much of that framework should be a part of your application. You want to expand on that a little bit? Sure, I did. Yeah. So there were a few other blog posts that were coming out, kind of trading jabs and debates about whether frameworks were great or whether they were really harmful, for example, because they could slow things down in mobile uh, context, for example. And I really think that those the, the trade-offs that were being discussed there were kind of missing the point. Um, because to me, the point is not yay frameworks all the time, nothing but frameworks, nor is it Frameworks are bad, do everything in vanilla JavaScript, don't use those sorts of things. I don't think either one of those is a healthy uh, end of the spectrum to be on. What we should be doing is asking ourselves, when and to what extent is a framework useful? I have, a, I have an opinion on that, and my opinion may be very different than other people, people listening in. My opinion is that the best usage of a framework is at the beginning of a project to help you get up and going rapidly to explore the problem space that you don't fully understand yet. And as you explore that space, the framework helps you quickly pivot from one way of doing something to another way of doing it. And uh, as you explore and mature the application, you will eventually start to realize this framework can do the following five different ways for the same task. We've decided that this one thing is the way we're going to use it. So at some point, rather than leaving the entire application based on that framework, I think an extra step that's missing in the maturity of a lot of applications is to ask the question, should the rest of that stuff that's in there that we're not using, not going to use, should it stay there or should it be pulled out? Now there are some frameworks where that's not that hard. You can make customized builds and pull out things that you're not using. And there are other ones where that's really difficult to consider the idea of pulling stuff out. Um, I think we have a misconception about what modularity even means. Modularity is not just because I have a bunch of files, then obviously I'm modular. Modular really means that these pieces can be pulled out and the rest of the system continues to work as expected. So when you're looking at choosing a framework, one of the things I think you should ask is, how easy will it be for me to take pieces of this out later when I realize that I don't need them? And if that answer is not easily, I wouldn't get started with that particular framework. That would be my personal take. But I think frameworks should help us in the beginning to get up and going. And as we mature the product towards production, I think the framework should begin to take more and more of a backseat. And what's left instead is the custom specific code that we know needs to solve that. So no more, no less than it takes to get the job done. And additionally now I would say to make sure that the code is understandable. 
once you get to that point, it really doesn't matter that you quote unquote had an Angular app or you had a React app. What matters is you have the app that is best suited for your particular scenario. So, well, so would you suggest okay. to people um, to like wrap their dependencies, like with with something like Angular or React. Like, let's say you are building a huge application, like it's pretty much like a given you're going to need a framework, otherwise you're going to build your own and it's going to be worse. Um, so w would you recommend in that case, like, just to keep the barrier, you know, as thin as possible or the influence of the framework as thin as possible, like wrapping the entire API into that framework or, or like, how, um, yeah, how much do you let that framework infiltrate your own code and, and how do you avoid it like jumping into uh, your own um, implementation. Beware of a framework that claims to be modular but makes it hard for you to be modular with what you build on top of it. So if you have a framework that tends to infiltrate every single line of your code and that is creating a set of brittle ties to things that is going to be very difficult to come back later and factor out or change or adjust, then I think maybe that framework isn't as modular as it might claim to be. So I would try to look for every possible way to create loose coupling between what I'm building and what I'm building it on top of. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to go overboard and have every single thing be an abstracted interface on top of four other layers of interface. But it does mean that there are some tried and true patterns for loose coupling, and I'm specifically thinking about event-driven architecture where pieces of your application never directly talk to each other but indirectly communicate through loose event-driven contracts. Those are the sorts of things that make pulling out pieces easier. For example, let's say you have a quote-unquote module in your application that's responsible for caching uh, pages in your SPA. Uh, your application should be able to work whether or not that module is present. You should be able to have it literally just not load and the application continues to run, maybe not as efficiently, but it should be able to continue to run exactly the same. And the only way for you to do that is for, to for you to have your quote-unquote reliance upon that module very indirect. I send off a message that says, I need something from the cache. If I don't get the response back, then I'm going to make the normal request because I'm going to assume it wasn't in the cache. That's very different than saying I have an API method called check cache and I have to call it and get a true or false back. And if I, get, if I can't call it, then I can't move forward. Uh, so I think there are some very framework agnostic but tried and true patterns that we've, we've battle tested over two or three decades of, of web application development that can be employed regardless of the framework of choice to keep those lines. You'll never be fully modular. It'll never be that you could literally rip out Angular and the app would keep running. That's not realistic. But you should be able to pull back from a framework and not have everything completely fall apart. So uh, two, two specific examples I'd be curious to get your thoughts on of like something that's like more intrusive than uh, probably uh, some of the examples that you gave. So let's say uh, for RxJS, like observables, let's say you were using observables, right? There's going to be littered throughout your code. And yeah, if you wanted to switch to something else, that would be pretty painful. Does that mean that you would suggest not using something like observables? Yeah, so here we're getting into the difference between a framework and a pattern or a library. I wouldn't call RxJS a framework. I would call it a library. It's a very extensive library. I'm a big fan of reactive programming. It's an open area of my research. Um, 
but I wouldn't call it a framework. If I were to define framework, what I mean is when a piece of code is added to your project that because of convention, it automatically starts doing stuff for you, that's where I think you draw the line that that thing has become a framework, and I would be very wary about having too much of that that I couldn't control. But libraries are tremendously powerful and important, and I think it's okay for us to use libraries to do what they're supposed to do. So the, the observables library of your choice, whether that be RxJS or another one, um, whatever library you choose, I think it's okay for you to use those things. Uh, I'm really just saying that the, the, the platform and the framework that's making lots of decisions for you, you should be very careful and wary of that, doing so in such a way that it would be very hard to switch later. Okay, here, here's one more example. I, um, somewhat similar, I guess, but somewhat different, maybe a little bit of gray area, is uh, dependency injection. So uh, with the Angular dependency injector, uh, obviously, the Angular 1 dependency injector is really intrusive and probably would be hard to kind of break, break away from, uh, like, unless you're, you know, uh, doing some gymnastics. But uh, Angular 2 dependency injector is a little bit more decoupled. It can be used more like a library. But I'd be curious still, you know, what your thoughts are just on that pattern in general. Hmm. Well, uh, you're straying into areas of knowledge about Angular that I don't come to the table with, so to speak. Uh, very authoritatively about a difference between Angular 1 or 2 or even what an exact definition for dependency injection is probably strays a little bit outside of what I would be comfortable answering. I can say in a general sense that I think dependency injection was actually invented to solve problems that we created for ourselves. Um, and uh, so I'm not necessarily in, in the belief that dependency injection is the right way to go about architecting uh, how your dependent, uh, how your dependencies are satisfied for the application, uh, but beyond that, I probably wouldn't be able to articulate anything useful <laughs> since I'm not a deep Angular developer. So, what do you what do you think about JavaScript running in everywhere ex, you know other than the browser? Like, we can't find a device that doesn't write that doesn't run JavaScript at this point. Like, how do you feel about JavaScript taking over the world? And mm -hmm. do you think that they will support ES6? <laughs> Actually, it's interesting. On that, I'll, I'll answer the second one first. I've heard several uh, several of those embedded devices. Of, I don't even remember the names of them, but several of those embedded devices that have JavaScript support. They have written their own JavaScript engines, and most of them have almost complete, if not complete, ES6 support. So they're actually ahead of the, the general browser game in that respect. Um, so the future of JavaScript on those devices is pretty bright. Uh, as for JavaScript eating the world, as for Atwood's law, whatever can be written in JavaScript will, um, I will I would answer that with an anecdotal quote that I heard. I don't know who to attribute it to, but I heard this years back. Um, the statement was, uh, you can put JavaScript on a pacemaker. You can run a pacemaker in JavaScript, but I don't want that in my chest. Um, I, I think that kind of summarizes my perspective, which is I'm a huge fan of JavaScript. There's a lot of really great things that I think JavaScript does, but that doesn't mean that I think that JavaScript is the one language to rule them all. I think it has a very um, powerful story to tell because it, it really did win the ubiquity war. It really is on all those devices, and it is a, it, it is a universal interface at this point that you can build applications on top of. But that doesn't mean that every line of code belongs in that. So when it, when it comes to the node world, for example, 
I think a lot of people assume that Note, what Node is best at is replacing your entire backend with uh, JavaScript, and I don't think that's the case at all. I actually think that the best thing that Node does is make it easy for you to drop in server-side JavaScript for the things that matter and that are useful in JavaScript and leave the rest of the environment um, the same. So, for example, years ago I called this middle end, these set of tasks for uh, templating and routing and data validation and data formatting. Those are things that every architecture does. I think JavaScript does them best, and the reason why is because those are tasks that are often needing to happen on both the server and the client. These days we use BS terms like isomorphic or universal for that. I called it middle end five or six years ago, and I still think it matters that, that, that those things should be implemented in JavaScript. That doesn't mean that you should go rewrite your entire business backend. It just means you could drop in Node and do those parts in Node and do the rest in treat the rest as a headless black box that you send data to and you get data back. Uh, I thought that then and I think that now. I think that is the best way to introduce JavaScript to, to more parts of your stack. Solid. Cool. So um, I wanted to, or I don't, I don't know who put this question in our talk, but this is a great question, so I'm going to go ahead and ask it. Um, so there seem to be differing opinions on the value of classes. Um, not to bring up a controversial subject or anything, um, but I guess I am. <laughs> so uh, what are your thoughts on classes? And um, often bundled with classes, for some reason, is TypeScript. Um, but those, those are two subjects that I'm curious um, your thoughts on. Can I unsubscribe from that question? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> I, OK. So yeah, classes get an awful lot of attention. Uh, the debate continues to rage. Um, those that are listening to me and have heard anything about me know that I'm, I'm well on record as saying I'm not a fan of classes. But I should make note that I, it is, I am not a fan of classes in JavaScript. I am not making any claims whatsoever that classes are inappropriate or wrong for code organization in other parts of your application stack other languages. What I'm making a claim is that if you really study the way classes were traditionally expressed in, and I mean in languages like C++ and Java because that is the vast majority of people that understand classes understand them in that context. Uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of developers don't come to JavaScript with small talk experience, for example. And I know small talk had a different way of thinking about it. And so if you have a, if, if you have a really diverse background of languages, you don't think about classes the same way that someone who's only experienced Java and C++ do. But because that's the majority, that's the majority of people that I run across when I'm teaching, I have to embrace the idea that classes means a specific thing. And the way that I teach is I don't teach black boxes. I teach how every little piece of everything that you're doing works. So when I have to teach classes in JavaScript, I have to take what you might understand from a C++ or Java background and try to apply that to what's happening in JavaScript. And time and time and time again, what we see is that it is ex not just a little bit different, but diametrically, fundamentally opposite to what JavaScript's mechanisms are. Just as a brief summary of that, and I've written a lot about this in my books and blogs too, but just as a brief summary, what I mean by being opposite is that the fundamental notion of classes and inheritance is a copy-down idea. It is the fact that from the top of the structure downward, 
things are copied, they are flattened out. But JavaScript works um, natively in exactly the opposite way, that everything is linked up, everything is delegated up the prototype chain. Uh, if you squint at it and you look at it from 50,000 foot, you could sort of say they're the same thing, and I think that's what we've been doing for 20 years, is saying uh, oh, it's prototypal inheritance. We put these terms in place that don't even really mean anything, but they're supposed to just gloss over the fact that there's some significant differences. When then they introduced the class keyword, for example, and class was supposed to be, it was sold to us as it's just syntactic sugar on top of what we've already been doing that's been ugly. Well, it turns out if you look at what they're doing with what they're proposing to add to classes, it's way more than just syntactic sugar. And the system that they are creating, that they will be creating over the next few version evolutions, is a system that I just think is fundamentally flawed in its ability to be taught. It, it is a system that if you use it from the outside and you do not ask how it works, you can probably be effective. But if your goal is to understand it, once you get under the covers, you will see an unbelievably complex mismatch of different weird paradigms that don't actually make sense together. It's the true uh, duct taping together. Let's just keep trying to pretend that this thing is what it isn't. So I think class is so hard to teach in JavaScript that its value doesn't play. There's a different way of thinking about the prototype system in JavaScript. And that is what I call delegation. And it's not an invent that's not an invented idea of mine. I just simply read a Wikipedia page for delegation. And then I looked at what JavaScript did and I said, oh, those two things are the same. Let's just let's call an apple an apple. I think that's much more effective. It's much simpler. It doesn't require libraries, it doesn't require complex patterns. We just make concrete objects and we link them together. I call that a loop. Objects linked to other objects. Um, so my, my feeling about class is that I think we're going the wrong direction with it. We're making it harder and harder for people to understand how it works and asking people to just take more and more of it for granted. And I don't think that's a good direction to take the language. I really like how you focus on um, like whether you should embrace the technology based on how easy is it for a beginner to learn and understand. Um, I, I've noticed that about not just what you just explained, which was awesome, but um, a lot of the things that you do. And I think that's a, a valuable uh, thing. I know Ryan Lawrence actually does the same thing, and I think that's, um, yeah, like even the most experienced developer uh, can benefit from uh, things that are easy for a beginner to learn. Um, yeah. And actually, since you bring up the word easy, let me go off on another tirade for just a moment. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, this is another thing that I feel very strongly about. Um, I think that we have a fundamental, as developers, we have a fundamental misunderstanding about what, the, what easy actually means. And I'm going to build this off of the work of somebody that is uh, enormously more uh, intelligent and smarter on the topic than I am. Uh, his name is Rich Hickey. He's in the Clojure community and uh, works for Daytonic. Um, but he gave a talk, a conference talk. The, the original version of this talk was Simple Made Easy. And then he came back a couple of years later and did an updated version of the talk called Simplicity Matters. Whichever version of, of that talk that you go and watch, I, I think that it should be required watching, readings, if you will, for every developer, not just once, but like once a quarter. We should go back to it and, and re-watch this because I think it's maybe the most important mindset that we don't get right as developers that we should. And let me just briefly summarize it. He is attacking this notion 
that developers tend to want uh, what we call easy, and we think that the word easy and the word simple, or that the idea easy and the idea simple are one and the same, when in fact they really aren't. So what he does is he breaks down this, what if, if the opposite of simple is complex, he went and looked at what where the word complex comes from. It comes from the word complected, which um, the original root of that word means to braid pieces of rope together. And you can think of a braided rope as being a very, very strong thing, but it's also incredibly difficult to take one piece of that braid out because it's all intertwined together. Simple is the opposite of that, which is unbraided. It's individual pieces that can be put together but can easily be removed. So the premise of his talk is that what we should be designing software for is software that is simple and unbraided rather than software that is easy. And he makes the argument, and I, if this was a religion, I'm, I would be a convert to it, uh, that what we tend to do as developers is go after easy software. And easy software is software that is very close at hand. It is familiar to us. It is something that we've done before or that makes our job quicker and more efficient. That's what we tend to want. And what we should be wanting is simple software. Simple is obviously highly related to mod this notion of modularity. So I think what, um, if you boil all of this talk down, what he says is, if you go after easy software, you oftentimes will end up with complex software as a result. But if you instead go after simple software, you have the opportunity to make simple software easy as well. So the question is really, what's your main goal? Is your goal to be easy and quick and fast and just get the thing out the door? Or is your goal to make quality software that will stand the test of time, that won't have to get rewritten because nobody understands how to fix it at a later time? I think we need to go for more simple and less easy. Plus one to that, I actually just rewatched the uh, Simple Made Easy talk like last week. It's a very, very good talk, so plus one to that. Um, so we're actually coming pretty close on our time now. Um, I did want to, you kind of uh, touch on the TypeScript thing. I actually really was curious on your just thoughts on typing because we talked about classes a lot, but what about typing in JavaScript? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm, I'm one of the rare few that actually likes the type system that currently exists in JavaScript. And that might surprise some listeners to assert that JavaScript does in fact have types. It does. If you read the spec, it calls them types. They are types. What JavaScript doesn't have natively right now and what TypeScript purports to add is type enforcement. Um, so one way of dealing with the complexities of software is to say, I want an error when something uh, doesn't go the way that I plan, when there's some mismatch of values because of a mistake I made or whatever. Another way of dealing with that is to understand how the system deals with those different types. So because that's what JavaScript gives us, JavaScript gives us a, a mechanism with types and of coercion, my perspective is we should learn how that works. And I do not believe uh, that coercion is this black box that is too hard and too magical and too difficult to understand. Actually, it's very straightforward. But the problem is that you have heard virtually everybody around you and everything you've ever read has said, oh, th there be dragons. Don't go learn the type and the coercion system. So what I did with one of the books in my series, the Types and Grammar book of my Udono.js series, is say, let's really dig in and actually see how coercion works. 
not only do I think the conclusion from that is that coercion is not as hard or as evil as people think, but I actually think there's a missed opportunity because what coercion allows you to do is to abstract details out of the code that do not matter to the developer at that point. That is one of the most powerful ways to, for us to make more sensible code and it actually fits very well coming full circle to what I said at the beginning, it fits very well with the notion of what ES6 does. It takes the things that we would be cluttering the code with and hides them underneath systems in the language. So I'm a big fan of coercion. I'm a big fan of learning it and using it responsibly. There's a very small set of things that you need to learn how to avoid and the rest of it is very powerful. So from that perspective, I'm not convinced that we need something like TypeScript. I have written lots and lots of code in my 17 years as a developer. And I have written probably as many bugs as I've written lines of code. I've written lots of bugs, but I can't even count on a single, I mean, I can't even fill up a single hand with the number of times that when it came down to it, the problem was that I started with an integer and I incorrectly ended up with a string. A coercion problem is just fundamentally not the kind of bugs that I write, which is why I'm not convinced that we need to go the route. That all that having been said, those that come to JavaScript with that as their mindset, I absolutely think TypeScript is the right way to go for them. Because the goal of any developer should be to find a way to use the language and the tools that they have available to them to most closely align their brains with the code that they're writing. I have this theory that says that whenever our brain and the code diverge, that's where bugs happen. So if your brain is already trained and already accustomed to using types and using not just types but type enforcement at the compiler level to write good software, then the best tool that you'll find is something like TypeScript and you should use that. There are others of us that that isn't the way my brain is wired, that isn't my experience and for me that's, what, that's why I don't use it. But I, I endorse using the right tools for the way that your brain works. Wow, bravo, that was awesome. A very practical, um, pragmatic. Like, yeah, that was great. Uh, good. Um, this was such a cool episode. I, I wish we had a little bit more time, but we, we still have a couple of things that we want to make sure we cover, um, and we want to make sure to respect everybody's time on, on the show. So um, there is another question that's really important, and it's about Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> No, uh, actually... Why didn't we start with that question? Exactly <laughs> <laughs> um, one there, month from today. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Wait, that was <laughs> no, so um, there are a couple of questions um, on uh, with the hashtag NGR question that I want to make sure that we don't miss out on. Um, but uh, I think we probably do have time for this um, last question about ES6 and uh, ES2016. Um, so... What are your favorite and least favorite parts of uh, those specifications? My favorite part of the ES6 specification? Uh, yeah. I think, I think the feature that I am most excited about because of its ability to transform the way that we write code is the ES6 generator. That's because I spend all my time obsessed about asynchronous programming patterns these days. So generators are my number one favorite, but a very close second is destructuring. Destructuring is a way of declaratively saying how you want assignments to happen. 
And while I'm not a fully declarative coder, I don't uh, you know, express things like the flex world, you just write out a bunch of markup and let somebody else figure it out. I do think that declarative coding techniques are very important um, when used responsibly. So I'm a big fan of destructuring because I think it makes uh, the complexities of dealing with deep nested assignments much easier to understand. Cool. Sweet. Okay. Um, I'll go ahead and ask it. How psyched are you for Star Wars? Well, I have opening day tickets and I have tickets to go back two days afterwards <laughs> and watch it again with my son and my friend and his son. Uh, so I'm doing I that bought too. two sets of tickets. Does that answer the question? <laughs> I think it's a good strategy. Like you, totally watching it uh, twice. Uh, I'm going to do that with uh, my wife the second time the, the weekend after. So. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Cool. Okay, let's, uh, we'll go ahead and jump into our Q&A on Twitter. So again, if you're watching live, you can ask with the hashtag end year question, and uh, we will um, answer your questions. So the first question that I got was uh, from Vile M. Uh, Vainio. Ah, shoot. He told me how to say his last name, and I don't know if I got it right. But anyway, um, he, his question is simply const or let? Winky face. <laughs> const or let? Um, it was probably going to upset some people if I say maybe neither. Um, so I know there's a lot of people out there that start with const and then they refactor to let and then they never use var. That's their new, the new mindset of ES6. I am literally the opposite. I still use var except in places where it's very clear that a block scoping is important and then I use let. And then there's a very, very, very rare set of cases where const can be useful. I have written two or more blog posts extensively about that mindset. So rather than bog down, I will simply tell people, look for the blog post that I wrote called Let is the New Var, and then look for the blog post Constantly Confusing Cons. Both of those together will explain to you why I believe it's better to still work with Var and Let and less with the cons rather than the other way around. Cool. Um, yeah, okay, the other question, let me find it. Um, okay, how, um, let's see, how soon is Fetch going to change things? Yeah, how and how soon is Fetch going to change things? Yeah, see, so that's less, a little less about JavaScript and more about the web platform. Um, but there is a relationship there that we can talk about. Fetch is a new API added to the web platform, which um, builds on this idea that we have a function that we call that we don't care what happens on the inside. All we care is that we get a, a promise back from that function, and we can subscribe to that promise to know when the function finishes its work. Um, that broadly, by the way, goes by the name async functions, and it's one of the proposed function types being added for the ES 2016 timeframe. Um, so if we ask our async functions good for the language, that's kind of a proxy for asking is fetch good for the platform. But let me first say, uh, I didn't really have that many problems with XHR. I Maybe I'm the only one that just, I, I, it wasn't that bad of an API to me. I've written many wrappers around it, of course, but I, I thought it was a pretty good system. So I never really fully understood why we needed a replacement. But then again, lots of people, lots of different ways that they use stuff. So I'm not, I'm not against that being added to the platform. But let's go back to the more interesting one, which is 
is, is it good for there to be async functions for the language? The async function is a syntactic codification of the generators plus promises pattern. And I am absolutely 100% convinced the generators plus promises pattern is the new baseline that all JavaScript developers need to get to in terms of modern JavaScript competency with async patterns. I think we all need to get there, and that's why I've spent so much time writing about it and talking about it, and I think we need to do that. So to have syntactic support for the pattern on the surface sounds really good. There are a few caveats that the async function brings, and one of them is that from the outside, an async function is not cancelable. It's not interruptible. You can't, while it's running, doing its work, you can't from the outside tell it, hey, I don't want you to do that anymore. When you're working with generators and promises, libraries do have that ability to interrupt a generator midstream, but async functions take that away from you. Um, as I've been discussing on various standards lists, that particular limitation, I think that's a huge deal, and I don't like the fact that, we don't, that we're losing that. Other people seem to not really care. So I would say, I can only say, I can only respond anecdotally to say, um, maybe 5 to 10% of the places where I'm currently using generators and promises together, am I going to refactor into new async functions? The rest of them I'm going to leave as generators because I want to have the ability to cancel from the outside. And let me say one last thing on that. I know we're running out of time, but one last thing. Um, I think we have some tail wagging the dot design going on in the standards process, and that's certainly not the first or the last time that will happen. But the goal to cancel from the outside was not considered in the original design for async functions. Even though some of us brought up that complaint early on, it wasn't thought about, it wasn't taken that seriously. Now it's maybe taking, being taken a little more seriously, and they're saying, well, shoot, um, async functions don't let the, us do that, so what should we do? And they're, back, they're backdooring their way into that by suggesting that we have a thing called cancelable promises. I think cancelable promises are almost as bad an idea as the class keyword is. Uh, so I can't say strongly enough that I don't think we ought to go that route. But uh, I think you know, I remember you'll have to read more that I've read, more that I've written. I, to get more. I, I was about to say I think I, I read a very very long GitHub issue yeah. on this particular subject that was absolutely hilarious. I'm gonna have to find that and post it in the. Uh, yeah, I, I've, written, I've written an awful lot about why I don't think these are good ideas. Uh, I'm not sure that they're really listening to me, <laughs> but I certainly haven't been silent on the topic. Interesting. There's a lot more resources to, to jump out uh, to. Um, so I think we're going we're gonna to wrap this up. I want to be respectful of your time, Kyle, and, and the panelists' time as well. So uh, let's go ahead and we'll, we'll go through tips and picks, and then we'll go... Uh, I'll give the closing announcements, and um, I have a really, really exciting announcement to make, and uh, Kyle will sort of be making that with me, um, so excited about that. Uh, Olivier just jumped, uh, jumped on, too, so Olivier, if you want to, you can think of a couple of quick tips and tips uh, while we go through, and if you're watching live, make sure you get your friends on um, watching, too, so they can hear this cool announcement as well. So... Um, yeah, we'll go ahead and, and uh, start with Amy. Can you give us uh, your tips and tricks, please? Uh, so my tip, hopefully people coming on this podcast, a really easy way to turn off your notifications is option and click over, if you're on OSX, the menu in the top right, the thing that has the three little bars. Anyways, very quick way to turn off your notifications. Second pick is, like, I'm really picky about podcasts. 
because I subscribe to like a bajillion of them. <laughs> and I normally uh, feel like they're coming out left and right, but um, this one is actually really, really good. And like I have not found an episode yet, even going through their entire uh, like feed that I haven't liked, but it's called uh, Developer Tea. So you should check out that podcast. They're really small. They're like little like 20-minute ones or so, but they're awesome. That's it. Cool. Yeah. Uh, um, I, uh, you recommended, I think on JavaScript Jabber, uh, you re recommended SE Radio. Yeah, that one's awesome too. I, I've been listening to that one. Um, that one's kind of interesting. This last one was kind of, kind of crazy. But anyway, um, Jeff, let's go for it. All right, so three quick things. First is Tessel. I, we mentioned it earlier in the show, and I just remembered how much I loved working with my Tessel too when I got it. I uh, strongly recommend it. It's just a fun thing to develop if you're a JavaScript developer that you can get some of the modules and program little widgets to light up and other stuff. So it's, it's totally just a fun thing um, that you could do on your uh, over Christmas or whatever. <laughs> the second thing is that um, I ran across, or I was talking with Rob, um, Wormald about uh, some different patterns in Angular 2, and he, he had created about doing the Redux pattern with Angular 2 using observables, and I just thought it was awesome. It actually used some of Patrick's code in there as well, um, but I thought it was a really good one, and it helped me a lot with uh, some of my understanding, so I strongly recommend that. Then I'll link, and then the last one is um, that Minko Genchev, who's been on the show before, uh, did a meetup, I forget where it was, somewhere in Europe, and uh, did a comparison discussion of React and Angular 2, and it, it was just a pretty thorough discussion. Like, I, I really liked uh, like a lot of the details they got into, and Minko is, is really knowledgeable. So I'll post a link to that document as well. Thanks. Um, all right, Patrick, you're up. Yeah, so I have um, one tip, or, or it's basically learn more about JavaScript, learn about the prototypes, learn about how this keyword works, and as well as the, the new keyword. And um, my pick is you don't know JS, so you better pick up the book. <laughs> cool. I'll send you. I'll send you a little uh, kickback and a check in the mail. Thanks, Frank. Guys, slide that under the table. <laughs> Cool. Um, I'll go ahead and, and uh, go, and Olivier said he doesn't have any picks, so then we'll go with, uh, um, with Kyle. So for my tip, um, my tip is don't be afraid to start something. Um, I started Angular Air with Todd um, Motto a year ago, and it was pretty easy to start. Like, we just fired up a, a Hangout on Air and um, took a couple emails to get, get going, and, and it's become this thing that has just been a made a big difference in my life and, and opened up a lot of opportunities. So don't be afraid to start something, um, a meetup or a conference even. Like, that's kind of a big commitment. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's awesome. It's fun. Um, my picks, I'm going to skip over the first one because that's part of the announcement. My second one is Frontend Masters. It's a great learning platform, um, so check that out. Uh, I should also probably mention egghead.io uh, because I'm an author and that is probably the right thing for me to do. <laughs> um, and then um, on Front End Masters, um, Kyle has a fantastic course, Advanced JavaScript. Um, and I, I would not consider myself a novice JavaScript developer, but I learned a ton from, uh, from Kyle's course. So I recommend that you go check that out. Um, 
So, yeah, Kyle, what do you have for us by way of tips and picks? Yeah, great. Well, let me build off of what you were just saying about front-end masters and say uh, I totally agree. Front-end masters, I think, is the best platform on the web for on-demand, high-quality video training in the web uh, space. They have some unbelievable, amazing people teaching on there. And then there's hack people like me. But uh, there's a bunch of really fun workshops on there for you to check out. I, I definitely recommend you check out Frontend Masters. They do put uh, many of their uh, classes over on Pluralsight as well, so you can find us on Pluralsight too. But you should definitely check out Frontend Masters. Um, I would also point out, we talked a little bit about uh, reactive programming observables before. Um, one of my favorite sites for learning about reactive programming and learning about what observables are, it's called rxmarbles.com. It's a visual site that lets you play with, you literally move the little marbles around and you, you can see what stream-based uh, operations and compositions can produce. And I, I make the claim you could probably learn 50% of what it means to be a reactive programmer just by simply playing around with those little marbles. Uh, I think it's a fantastic site. I, I look forward to them putting more and more features on that one. Um, and I would also say in the async space, um, I put out a project a little while ago. I'm going to be continuing to work on it. Um, but this would be my last uh, tip slash link uh, to point out. Um, to do MVC is obviously very well known for comparing different frameworks for common front-end tasks. But I didn't really think that we had a very good project um, uh, for doing that in the asynchronous pattern space. So I, I made a project called A Tale of Three Lists. And if you find that on my GitHub, it's the same functionality implemented seven different with, with seven different asynchronous patterns from callbacks to promises to generators, reactive programming with observables, all the way up into high-level things like CSP. So I recommend if you're interested in learning why these different patterns matter and looking at the relative strengths and weaknesses of them, check out uh, a table of three lists. Great, thank you. Okay, and now is the time for the great big announcement. Um, so I'm super, super excited about this. Um, so uh, the, this, um, the topic for today was not by accident. This was intentional. Um, so Angular is really awesome, and it's built with a really awesome language on a really awesome platform we call the web, with all of its problems and everything. Um, but uh, ultimately, everything comes back to JavaScript on the web. And um, JavaScript is the, the key piece that um, is going to stay for a lot longer than any of these frameworks, React, Ember, Angular, um, Backbone, Polymer, any, any of these things. Uh, JavaScript is going to be here for a long time. Maybe not forever, but for a very long time. So um, because of that, I feel like, personally, it's very important that we all focus on learning JavaScript. Um, and that will make us uh, more effective with whatever framework of, of choice that we make. Um, it will make us better teachers. It will make us um, you know, better web developers. And so um, because of that, um, Angular Air is expanding and kind of splitting out um, to two different podcasts. Um, so we have Angular Air. We'll continue on. Um, we're handing off management of that to Patrick uh, and Angular class. And Jeff Welpley will be hosting Angular Air. And so that means for me, I will be uh, starting a brand new podcast, uh, broadcast podcast called JavaScript Air. And it is what you think it is. Uh, it's basically Angular Air for JavaScript. 
uh, and I'm super, super excited about this. So just some uh, fun information about this new podcast. You can find uh, javascripttoair.com. Um, the site is pretty much nothing right now. Um, but uh, also there's a, a Twitter account that I recommend that you follow so that you can find out the latest and greatest for, from JavaScript Air. And then um, I have some awesome panelists for this show that I have uh, agreed to sign on. So we have uh, Lynn Clark, um, who is super awesome. She does the uh, coding cartoons. Uh, Brian Lunsdorf, who did the Mostly Adequate Guide uh, to Functional Programming. Very, very cool. Uh, very cool guy. Um, Matt Zabriskie, he's also very awesome. Uh, a local to my area. We're, we're good friends. And, and he built Axios, which a lot of React developers use for their asynchronous stuff. Um, and uh, he, he organized a React Rally here in Utah. Uh, Pam Sell, who is a fantastic uh, speaker, developer. Um, I met her first at uh, MidwestJS. She's very cool. And uh, Kyle Simpson, um, who will be joining us as a panelist. So super stoked about that as well. Um, and Tyler McGinnis, who is an uh, instructor. He works at a company, I can't remember the name, uh, but he moved from Utah to London. Um, but he does a lot of uh, um, React stuff and, and Angular as well. And uh, hopefully we can get Dan Abramoff. I haven't been able to get a solid uh, commitment from him, but he's pretty solid uh, that he's going to be joining us. So um, very, very excited about this. Um, I feel like we've got a really awesome lineup of panelists, and we're leaving Angular Air with an awesome lineup of panelists, too. I, I wanted to make sure I didn't um, uh, poach any panelists from Angular Air, so um, that's good. Um, so for our first episode, it should be, I think, on uh, December 7th. I think that's a Wednesday. No, the week of December 7th, so I think the 10th, um, at probably uh, 12 o'clock uh, Central Time. So that's why you need to follow us on Twitter so that you can make sure you know when that is actually going to happen. Um, and the first episode will hopefully be with Ashley G. Williams and Kyle Simpson on learning and developing JavaScript. So uh, really excited. Make sure to tune in um, in a couple weeks for Angular Air and JavaScript Air. And share this with all of your friends, because it's awesome. <laughs> ah, so did I, uh, do you have anything to add, uh, Kyle? Uh, I'm super uh, excited I'm about excited it, but I'll just remind everyone that's listening to this Angular podcast. Uh, Angular is just JavaScript. <laughs> Indeed. Awesome. Cool. So uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's just wrap things up. I, I should just probably say goodbye, because um, I'm not going to be hosting another one of these shows. It's been a, a pretty awesome year, um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's just been really, really great. Uh, I'm leaving you all in very, very capable hands with Je Jeff, and I know that Angular class is going to take um, Angular Air to a new level, um, because they'll have uh, more time uh, to devote to, uh, to Angular Air and making it more awesome. So. Uh, I look forward to all the cool things coming from Angular Air, and uh, I hope you can all look forward to uh, what's going to happen with this JavaScript Air thing. So um, does anybody have any uh, last-minute comments before we say goodbye? Alrighty, Then with that, um, I'm going to say I'll see you all around on the interwebs, hopefully on JavaScript Air. And uh, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It's a big honor. Thanks for having me. I'll tell you what, this is probably, um, yeah, this was my favorite show. This was very, very cool. So thank you. You made that, uh, made that happen. So.
See you, everybody. See ya. Bye. Yeah.